At what point do we just stop world building and let the visitant's imagination wander? Do we just throw our hands up in the air and say, hey, go ahead and just pretend this is an alien world. I don't want to come up with anything anymore. This week, we find a sci-fi legend's limits. Welcome to the Worldcraft Club podcast, a show for writers, dungeon masters, and storytellers who want to create deep, immersive settings that will bring their audience back time and time again. I'm your host, James, and I'm talking with my co-host, Seth. This conversation took place during a weekly fireside gathering. We're experimenting with some format changes here, so what you're getting is a relatively uncut, unedited version of a conversation between Seth and myself about something we both thought had some utility for world builders and writers. This was something raised by uh, by Obsidian Cross on our on our Discord server. He shared it with me. It was a page at the beginning of his book, and he just kind of raised it idly during a fireside chat um, every <laughs> week on the server, Thursday evenings, 8 p.m. EST. We get together on the server and just sort of have a chat, and everybody sort of talks about world building stuff. Sometimes we talk about nonsense. Sometimes it gets a little metaphysical. It's it's a lot of stuff happens. And uh, it's, it's where a lot of the ideas that we, you know, develop in the podcast are sort of tested in front of people. And we like discuss this stuff and like build upon ideas and goof off a lot. So it's a really, really good time. But this, this letter was brought out during one of our, one of our meetings, and I thought it was really worth some discussion. So I started chatting with Seth about it and he assured me he has lots of thoughts on this and i certainly do as well i do so it's it's interesting to give you give you all some context um this is based on a novel let me just get the name of it up here i had it google searched um it was called nightfall by isaac asimov and robert silverberg so isaac asimov obviously famous sci-fi author a very found foundational author of science fiction famous for the uh foundation series and um and for uh for iRobot and and a number of other uh short stories and novels that really um explored the fringes of science fiction and uh kind of really brought the genre uh pretty he he laid some of the foundational works of science fiction down that that a lot of authors now build upon so this guy's no joke but he put this letter at the beginning of one of his books, and I think it's interesting, and I think it's worth discussing, and I think some of your nostrils will flare as I read it, and I think it will be an interesting thing to discuss about the limits of how much we expect our audience to immerse themselves within the setting versus doing the work of world building and, and kind of placing the visitant in the, in the space. So let me read this to you. To the reader. Kalgash, the setting of the book Nightfall, is an alien world and it is not our intention to have you think that it is identical to Earth, even though we might depict it, uh, depict its people as speaking a language that you can understand and using terms that are familiar to you. Those words could be under, should be understood as mere equivalents of alien terms. That is a conventional set of equivalents of the same sort that a writer of novels uses when he has foreign characters speaking with each other in their own language, but nevertheless transcribes their words in the language of the reader. So when the people of Kalgash speak of miles, or hands, or cars, or computers, they mean their own units of distance, their own grasping organs, their own ground transportation vehicles, their own information processing machines, etc. The computers used on Kalgash are not necessarily compatible with the ones used in New York or London or Stockholm 
And the mile that we use in this book is not necessarily the American unit of 5,280 feet. Understand this was written in 1941 as well. So when he's speaking of computers, that is a term that, that may not ring true for us. But it seemed simpler and more desirable to use these familiar terms in describing events on this wholly alien world than it would have been to invent a long series of wholly Calgashian terms. In other words, we could have told you that one of our characters paused to strap on his quanglishes before setting out on a walk of seven vorks along the main glebish of his native's noob, and everything might have seemed ever so much more thoroughly alien. But it would also have been ever so much more difficult to make sense out of what we were saying, and that did not seem useful. The essence of this story doesn't lie in the quantity of bizarre terms we might have invented. It lies rather in the reaction of the group of people somewhat like ourselves living on a world that is somewhat like ours in all but one highly significant detail as they react to a challenging situation that is completely different from anything the people of Earth have ever had to deal with. Under the circumstances, it seemed to us better to tell you that someone put on his hiking boots before setting out on a seven-mile walk than to clutter the book with quanglishes, vorks, and glebishes. If you prefer, you can imagine that the text reads vorks wherever it says miles, or gleesbees wherever it says hours, or slash traps wherever it says eyes, or you can make up your own terms, vorks or miles, it will make no difference when the stars come out. Signed, Isaac Asimov and Robert Silverberg. I feel like we should pause here for just a little bit of level setting as Seth and I reference the book pretty freely and don't always give context. Nightfall is about a planet which has six suns and is bathed in continuous daylight as a result. Scientists figure out that there is a major catastrophe that occurs every 3,000 years wherein a moon, invisible in daylight, obscures one of the suns, which happens at the time to be the only one visible. It bathes the world of Kalgash in total darkness. The people there, being unfamiliar with the dark and fearing it, they don't know when the night's going to end, and they catch their first glimpses of the wider universe in the form of stars. They go quite mad and completely annihilate their culture. The story is focused on people attempting to predict this coming event and respond to it. I think that should be about as much context as you need. So, onward. So here's my hot take. They were specifically trying to address a certain kind of reader. Yeah. And in my opinion, this is not a reader of science fiction. This is a reader mm -hmm. of science fantasy who is complaining to a bunch of science fiction read, uh, writers that their world is not bizarre enough. Yeah. And the reason I say this is because there was a trend at this time for fantasy writers to try to make up all sorts of interesting, and I say that with quotes around it, interesting worlds by just literally coming up with random terms and being like, well, it's like this thing, but it's not this thing. It's a, it's a different version of this thing. It's a fantasy version of this thing. And that was in vogue. It was in vogue yeah. for writers to just 
sort of come up with their own languages and come up with their own uh, their own ideas. And the the tone in this letter strikes me as a couple of writers who are like, look, we're not going to do the work for you. If you want to do that, do that. But it has nothing to do with us. And so I resonated with, with it on sort of this visceral level of being like, this is a writer, like writing to a complaining reader. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. You can tell they like it's I, I, I'm a really big believer in that every sign has a meaning, which is why signs are so funny where it says, like, don't hmm. pee on this wall. You can guarantee right. someone tried to pee on that wall, yeah. which is why, That's like, right. instructions, instructions like that are so, like, jarring. Like, cameras right. are for research purposes only. Put it like a urinal or something. It's just upsetting for people to read. Like, <laughs> and it's. It, it tells you something. It signals that something happened. Right. And you're right. Like this is this is really a pair of authors right. sort of retorting at a at a at a complaining yes. reader who's like, this is just like Earth. Like why? Right. I, I don't feel placed. This isn't in this real setting. This isn't real. You haven't done the fiction. world building, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is which is fascinating because I have a another like I have a hot take on yeah. science fiction that this feeds into. And it might get me strung up. Like legitimately, it might get me strung oh. up. Like in a, such that you would still share it here or like, um, are you going to hold that one for later? Drop in one of your YouTube shorts? No, no. I think I, I'm willing to share it. Right. Okay. And I'm willing for people to challenge me on this. And I think that this yeah. would be an interesting, interesting discussion. But it really feeds into what they're talking about here, sort of under the surface. And it's this. Mm. If your alien world is not, or I'm sorry, if your science fiction story is not based around humans, then it is not science fiction. It is science fantasy. Okay. And the reason I say that is because in order for something to be, um, I'm sorry, it's not, I said that wrong. It's not that it's not, um, or it's not science fantasy, it's space fantasy. Gotcha. Right. Or cosmic fantasy, Hmm. because in order for something to be science based, it has to be based on something that's real, that really exists. Yeah. And so Star Wars can sort of get away with it, even though it's not real science fiction. Yeah. um, Because it's science fantasy, because there are humans, because we have that reference point of something scientific something real from which we can extrapolate all of these other what ifs, right? And everything Asimov wrote and everything most science fiction writers wrote for a really long time was based around humanity because that is the one reference point that if you change it, all of a sudden there is no science in it. Yeah, and there's 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 a lot in there because like my first thought is Star Trek. Right. Like Star Trek was known to be like Star Wars is like older, more serious brother, you know, like and um, who like was an accountant um, <laughs> while the younger one went off to be an indie author. Right. right. And um, <laughs> so like you, you get you get the good son, Star uh, Star Trek, which 
which was actually really more, I would make the argument, it was more moral fantasy than anything else. Like a lot of the idea behind Star Trek was exploring human morality when challenged by the fringes of science fiction. And like the alien races in it were basically just humans with exemplified traits of humanity. Like you have the the Ferengi are exemplifications of greed and you have the, the Klingons have given into anger and the Vulcans have completely taken away their emotions and, and sort of set them aside in right. favor of, uh, of in logic. favor of cool reasoning and logic. And these are all mm -hmm. temptations that we have and things we want to pursue. We want to give in to those passions and warlike passions sometimes. So the Klingons are there to represent that. But really they were all just sort of human human humans. And they, you know, they had the same grasping organs and all this stuff. But I'm reading right. three body problem right now, which is like dense science fiction stuff. And it's like very mm -hmm. it is definitely science fiction. Like they are ex talking about the fringes of science uh fringes right. of science in it and alien races if they're not like people they're just freaking terrifying like it's right. just there's like there's no way to do it without just a mountain of weird coming your way because like That's they're right. going to think in a way that is just so unfathomable so like in the three body problem the humans take advantage of the fact that an alien race they're at war with does not understand lying Right. They have no conception of lying. It doesn't make any sense to them. So the humans lie and they're able to use they bluff, basically. And using the bluff, they're able to secure secure themselves for a time. And um, it's that there, there are things like it's it's even just the, the, the you never see the alien race in three body problem that that threatens us. the, the trisolarians. They, they could be the size of a grain of rice. You know, you don't know. And they could be sort of arthropods, you know, instead of human, it's sort of human sort of shape, sapient shape. And um, all of this is just so frightfully weird that I think I'm kind of like, I, I'm kind of comfortable with this idea of essentially just like the, the Expanse, for example, features, and this is sort of a minor spoiler for the Expanse, there's no aliens really in the Expanse that you ever see. They speculate mm -hmm. as to what prior alien races might have been like, but all of it's about humans, which makes it really right. fun science fiction because of that. And it really is science yeah. fiction. But when you include an alien race, you've got to include a thought pattern that involves a completely different physiology, a completely different yes. understanding of their world. And it, like um, Ender's Game was a little like that. They encounter yeah. a race of, of, of intelligent Bugs. ants, essentially. Yeah. And when they bore human spaceships, they immediately went around and killed all the people inside because they were like, oh, that's like their sensing organs. They like didn't even think about it. They were just like, oh, yeah, you murder, you murder all the all the worker ants. But they were right. killing individual. Say and when they find out that that's what they've been doing, they're mortified that they've yeah. been doing that. And because um, it would they, be like they, killing the queens. Yeah. And they are yeah. they are horrified that each person had agency and individuality and, and they, they are they realize they have done something awful and they, they right. are repentant, but unable to even communicate their repentance to humanity before it's too late. Yeah. Aliens are scary and weird. And Asimov just wanted to think about what it would be like if everyone went crazy during night. Like that, yeah. that's all he wanted to talk about in that book. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, and Asimov was always a single issue dude. Like he just right. kind of was like, wouldn't it be weird if robots were sapient? Like, and he's like, let's write a book about that. You know, wouldn't it be weird if he could predict history by the large the movements of large groups of people? He's not interested mm -hmm. in aliens in the same way that a lot of sci-fi authors might have been. You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting. It's weird that it it's, is. It's kind of off like that. And I think, I mean, 
I don't know that he's not interested in aliens, but I think that he, I think that in his thinking about aliens, because the last book of Foundation talks about this a, l- a little bit, and his thinking about aliens, he realized that they would be so different from us that there would be no points of commonality, that there would mm. be nothing that we could engage with them on, likely. Mm. Now, again, that's all speculation. But I do think that that this also speaks to um, sort of reader expectation, right? And I wonder if science fiction, when he wrote this, wasn't well-developed enough for people to understand what it was, or at least the hard science fiction that he was writing, right? Because at the same time, we have, uh, you know, John Carter of Mars, not science fiction. Not, certainly nowhere near hard science fiction. Exactly, but it's it's technically considered sci-fi. Yeah. Right, and so I wonder if what was happening for him is this was sort of his polite way, his polite rebuttal against all of these readers or maybe even even publishers or agents who were like, throw some weird terms in here, throw some weird stuff in here because people will eat it up. We'd kind of make the argument as well, like because we're also granted we are 80 years removed from this book. Right. Like this is 80 years of science fiction has happened since he right. wrote this. And. Um, and. Our expectations have changed yeah. in what we want from um, world building, this idea that <laughs> we, we always talk about, like bringing your visitant like into your setting and that idea yeah. of immersion and things like that. And he's basically just saying. How about you just immerse yourselves? I want to talk about night. <laughs> I want to talk about it being nighttime and everyone going crazy. It's like, yeah. And I, I, there's a sense in which, like, as we read it as modern readers, we're kind of like a little offended by that. And it's like, no, you put me in your setting. Like, I'm reading, I'm reading Redwall right now to my son, and um, they go like Brian Jacques. I want to say Jacques. Jacques uh, goes Jacques. to great lengths in that book to constantly remind you they're mice right? right so he's like so for those of you who don't know Redwall is is about uh, anthropomorphized mice but they are very much like actually just living in the english countryside and it's like yeah. so they have an abbey that they've built and they have like a culture and a society humans appear to just be not present they don't like, exist they just don't exist in it and so all the animals just talk and so you have otters who are great swimmers and excellent slingers of stones you get badgers who are big fierce bloodlust enraged animals and like all this kind of thing, all these different animals, and they're all sort of like effectively these different sorts of um, different sorts of races and communities that get along together in Redwall Abbey. And he goes to great lengths in those books to be like, it was no more than a pause width. You know, it's like, right, could have said hands width, could have given us like these things, but was very, very careful to continuously remind you we're right. talking about mice. And like, that's the effort that I think I would ask Asimov for in reading this if but i think i may be approaching it in a way that he doesn't want well see you know? if he was writing about an alien race mm. if it was all robots 
he would not describe their hands as fleshy. He would describe them as metallic because he was a good writer. Yeah. But I read this letter as him saying, I'm writing about humans. If you don't like yeah. it, imagine something else. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, here's the deal, though, is we also talk about making the main thing the main thing. That's right. His whole thing is like, if humans never experience darkness, the what only would thing they would associate them? it with is predators, basically. Things that are hiding right. in the trees. Though, you know, it's kind of though thing. even that, even that, it it's doesn't like, even go that far. you know, if humans had never experienced darkness, except when they closed their eyes, would it actually drive them mad? Well, I think he's kind of like, just like being like, suppose if. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's yeah. a lot of like yeah. leaps in there. And it's, this is why I think like Asimov is, I, I would actually challenge the idea that Asimov was necessarily like a particularly great writer. I think he was a concepts guy. And I think he had fascinating concepts that were really interesting to explore. And I think he wrote well enough to convey them in a way that was interesting and engaging and made people think about the worlds that he was creating. I don't know that I would necessarily place him in a in a high category of like this is excellent prose. You know, as I'm reading it, I'm not. I like, would. Wow, I would say I'm blown away. I would say I that he was a great writer. Yeah, yeah. I would say that he was a great writer. Um, but that might just be because the Foundation series was, in fact, foundational for my understanding of fiction. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think he was necessarily particularly gifted with his world building or his plot. Yeah. And I think it's because he was so focused on extrapolating from human society. Yeah. And so everything that he wrote feels like it could be set in a not too distant future. Even yeah. the stuff that's in a very distant future or like in Foundation, when, when societies regress, they feel as if they are, um, like if, as if they could be real, but not real in a fun, fantastic way, but yeah. real in a really mundane, boring way. I don't know. I, <clears throat> and again, I think that no, my, no. my understanding of his writing is probably colored by when I read it. In my life, and I don't know, I haven't, it would be a fascinating thing to go back and read again and see yeah, I, uh, if it still holds up to my adult eyes. You know, that's what I'm doing. I'm actually rereading Foundation now. Okay. And, um, okay. I'm, I'm going like, to have to do that too. Hmm. As I read it, because like there's, sure. there's a lot to like about it. Not, not to yes. be like, I, I'm, I'm really not trying to crap on one of, you know, the most, keep saying this term foundational but like one of the most critical like if you're yes. going to read science fiction and you have not read any asimov like you should probably consider picking up a book and and, and checking him out because like he's he's pretty vital um right. so i'm 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 trying to tiptoe a little bit well that's the, the, the sure. my you idea like asimov you can be wasn't, like he's totally particularly terrible yeah i'm just kidding. totally terrible. garbage but it's like, I think the thing that's interesting is is looking at these different authors and what we take away from them and what we benefit from with them, right? Right. And I think Asimov 
was a, a writer who wanted to focus on a single idea and, and as I think you said, this extrapolate that concept. And so like with um, Foundation, a lot of it was, well, could we predict the future? Large movements of people, right. that seems reasonable. And it's like, it's a plausible idea and it's what makes it science it fiction. It's like, we could sort of, I can, I can kind of like, I can squint a little bit and see that happening. And then yes. you also have like this idea of, okay, we've got a galactic empire. What if that collapsed? And how would civilization rebuild itself? And what phases would that need to go in if somebody could look at it like a puppet master from the top and predict big events? And it's like, it's a really neat idea. And then what would throw a wrench in the works of such a grand design? And like, that's right. though, that's what he's talking about. He's super interested in uh, Gliebespecs instead of Miles. You know what I mean? He's not interested right. in like, you know, how many parsecs you can of... do the Kessel run in? Like, though he would yeah, never what have made kind that of digits somebody has. Yeah, he's like not concerned. It's like, mm. uh, you know, it's it, it's that's just not his area of interest. He's not looking to explore an alien culture, right, in the same way. Though I, I would argue things like The Expanse does a great job of asking lots of little questions and kind mm. of exploring them about how human cultures would develop in the void. And right. um, yeah, and it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and I think it's, it's partly, for me, part of this makes me think about how we place our heroes in literature, how we place our, um, our favorite writers and, and the people that really influenced us. It's like, mm -hmm. did they really do, like, when we say that someone's a great writer, sometimes I think we mean it only along one spectrum. And they could be yes. an exceptional element of a given spectrum. But we could also say, but their prose doesn't make me weep. Like Tolkien will make me cry when I read parts of Tolkien because it's just sure. beautiful writing. Other parts will bore me to tears, frankly. Like he was, he was lavish in his descriptions. But like there are like, yeah, sometimes tears of boredom, sometimes <laughs> tears of whimsy, you know, uh, right. but it's like tears nonetheless. Um, you know, I do think yeah. that when we say and this is this is sort of getting off topic here a little bit, but I do think that when yeah. we say, you know, that this person was a great writer, what we often mean is at the point in my life in which I read this person, they had a yeah. significant impact on me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what we really mean because the reality is that like, And maybe, maybe my, my eyes are jaded yeah. being a writer, um, yeah. like doing this for a living, but like the really, like the greats aren't always that good. Yeah. You know, I mean, this, 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 this brings me back to the Brandon Sanderson is your God article. Um, right. And like, I cause like. It's uh, so this is an interesting thing. And I, I think actually we should probably have this discussion at some point on here because I think it's actually an interesting thing to talk about. And now we're a few months removed from it. There's right. less controversy kind of whipping about it. And I think it would actually be interesting to discuss it because like essentially yeah, it. it was written by a guy who just didn't like Brandon Sanderson's prose. But like right. we don't really go to Brandon Sanderson for his exquisite prose. <laughs> we go to him for like a really neat hard magic system. And sort of like moments yeah. of 
kind of badassery that we sort of want to mm-hmm. see, like with with using the tools and and because you it's a hard magic system, you can sort of piece it together, and you're like Sherlock Holmes, and when they do the thing, you're like they did the thing, and like that's that's Brandon Sanderson's majesty right there. But he's mm-hmm. good at that. Like right. he does not need to be Shakespeare to be right. really good at that and to to move people and to and to you know draw people in and to get them excited. It's kind of like. You don't need to be all things to all men. You need to be that's something right. to a group of people who want to buy your books. Like that's what you that's, need. You know what I mean? Like that is that is I've never heard it said better. <laughs> you don't need to be all things to all men. You need to be some things to a group of people who will buy your books. That is yeah. writing in a nutshell. <laughs> all right. I'd, can we soar any higher set now that I've, I don't I've think tied so. it together? I don't right. think so. I, I would I would yeah. like to just say, sort of in closing, um, yeah, that I am a huge proponent of the idea that you should just be able to write what you want to write. Yes. And, and if people don't like it, that's on them. Right? Yeah. So as a writer, just do your thing. Write what you want to write. If you don't want to write about aliens, don't write about aliens. If you want to write about aliens, write about aliens. And you know, write, same a, thing. Write, write a curt but polite letter. Yes. Explain people that you didn't yes. want to do that. Literally just being like, shove off. I'm doing this. <laughs> I wanted to write it this way. I wrote the book I wanted. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's perfect. All right, Seth, go enjoy the couch with your wife. Thank you. I'll see you, man. All right, dude. Bye. See ya. For those of you keeping a Worldcraft Club podcast bingo card, this episode was pretty well loaded with entries. Write what you want to write. I can see this letter, polite though it was, stirring some folks up. It's frustrating in some ways to distill all the world building and setting development to, hey, why don't you just pretend these words are different? But I don't think it's reasonable to divorce it from its time and the trends that were present 80 years ago in science fiction that Asimov was responding to. Perhaps more importantly though, you do not have to write things you don't want to write. Write what you're interested in and let your audience come to you. That will mean that sometimes you develop extremely sophisticated elements of your setting, such as in the case of Brandon Sanderson, where he had a hard magic system that was incredibly involved that might sometimes have struggled a little with the prose. But other parts of your setting may be left feeling to you conspicuously blank. This can be fine to do at times. If Asimov can get away with it, so can you. I hope you enjoyed sitting in with me and Seth drilling down on this topic. If you catch a moment, please go ahead and rate us and review us on your favorite podcatching app. And also, if you want to find Seth's stuff, it's all available at SethRing.com. That is S-E-T-H-R-I-N-G.com. You can find his entire catalog there. There will be a link for it in the show notes. Don't forget to check out our link tree to join our Discord if you want to have more conversations like this with us in real life, or if you want to pick up your copy of the World Builders Journal to help you level up your world building game. For Seth, I'm James, and this has been another episode of the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 